welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 271. And this week on the podcast, we're mixing things up. So normally on a Monday, we're releasing a Monday Minute. And today we have a different episode format, although it's a Monday. Uh, and we're actually going to have a new episode on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. Essentially, what we're doing is a little bit of behind the scenes with Exo Mountain Gear. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a bit, you know that the Hunt Backcountry podcast is presented by Exo Mountain Gear, but we don't spend too much time talking about the company or the product on a normal basis and instead just try to provide you valuable hunting information. But we do get a lot of questions about the company and how it operates, and we wanted to take the time to do some behind-the-scenes work, especially since this year we didn't get to travel due to COVID and attend events like Hunt Expo and the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show and really connect face-to-face with customers. And so we had the idea of getting some new voices from Exo Mountain Gear on the podcast. Today we're speaking with Patrick Kelly, uh, and his story is fascinating, and his work with Exo Mountain Gear is incredibly valuable to what we do, and you'll hear all about that. Tomorrow, we're going to have Jake Havlicek, another Exo Mountain Gear employee on the show, to talk about his story and working with the company. And then on Wednesday, Jake himself actually takes over as the host of the podcast to interview Steve and I and ask us some questions that uh, we probably wouldn't otherwise talk about ourselves. So it's going to be a fun week, you know, hearing stories that have to do with hunting and also kind of behind the scenes of Exo Mountain Gear as a company. So Again, this full-length episode today with Patrick, an episode tomorrow with Jake, and then on Wednesday, Jake is going to take over the show as the host and interview Steve and I. So, hope you guys enjoy these episodes. As always, your feedback is appreciated. You can always contact us directly by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. But right now, let's dive in and get to know Patrick Kelly from Exo Mountain Gear. So, Pat, we will go and talk about your background uh, in a bit, but I want to kick things off with hearing about the first day you walked into Exo Mountain Gear. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, right after my wife and I decided to stay in Boise, uh, the first email I wrote was to Steve asking about whether they needed help with Exo or SNS. And I uh, heard back from him a day or two later. We had run out of our Airbnb. So, I was actually renting a cabin in McCall at that point. And he told me to just, when I got back in town, kind of stop in for a quick interview and walked in, talked to him for 10 minutes. And he told me to come back the next day and start. Is that how you always hire people, Steve? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) I think like, I think Jake's a similar story of uh, just kind of walked in one day and yeah. All right. Go to work. Yeah. I mean, I got, I feel like I got remarkably lucky. I think you told me that you had just kind of decided you needed seasonal help, right? Like this was in August. So it's like our busiest time of year. And uh, I think you told me like, I can only promise you work for, you know, a month or two, but we just need some extra hands to kind of get packs out the door. And I didn't know anybody and didn't have anything else going on. So I was like, yeah, let me do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, definitely, well, it was, I was thinking, I knew it was July or August and we were just super, super busy behind on shipping packs out and and this guy emailed me and um i think what i remember uh is you know i think you emailed me a little bit of your story pat of how you guys were you know bouncing around all over the west trying to find a place to live and i thought that was pretty 
cool. Like that's, um, like, well, obviously we'll get into that story, but that takes, I don't even know what the right word is, but, um, you know, you have to have a, a sense of adventure and, uh, it's just that, that type of personality trait. It was cool to me that someone just really like wants to move and willing to just travel all over the country with everything they need in their car to find a place to live. Um, and so I'm, I definitely remember that. I'm like, yeah, sweet. We need help. Have this guy come in and um, have him for a few months. And if, you know, if I like him, we'll keep him around. So here we are. What has it been two, three years, Pat? It'll be three years in August. So yeah, two and a half okay. years. Two and a half. Yeah. I've had, I've had people say that to me before too. Like, Oh, you're so lucky. It all worked out. And I'm like, it's not luck. I quit my job. My wife quit her job. We sold all of our stuff and we just left. Like it was kind of like leaving it up to the the fate of the universe to get it to work out, but it didn't take nothing to do that. You know? Yeah, no, that, that take, I mean, a lot of people want to make change, want to move somewhere else, but really don't have the balls to do it. They're yeah. too, they're too afraid of failure or whatever. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that back. Cause that's what I wanted to back up to was, you know, we talked about you landing Exo mountain gear, but essentially your story of getting there is, you guys were out on the East Coast and wanted to go west and didn't know what that looked like or where you were going to land in terms of a state, a job, anything like we just mentioned. Uh, what was the big driver? You guys just you just wanted to be out west for hunting opportunity. Your wife wanted to be out there for for what? Like what made you guys want to make that jump? Um yeah, I don't really, I don't really know. There wasn't like one specific thing. You know, I'm from Connecticut, my wife's from northern New Hampshire and we met in college in Boston. So we'd been living, you know, in that Northeast corner of the country for, for our whole lives pretty much. And you know, I've traveled quite a bit, but not so much out West. And, uh, honestly, a lot of it, a lot of it's like, you know, Steve's fault watching all the pure elevation videos and stuff. And, you know, even I've been buying stuff from SNS archery for years for bow hunting back East, but just the sense of adventure and the simplicity of putting a backpack on your back and having all this you know, public land that you can kind of hunt. It's so opposite from what we had where I was. So in the back of my mind, it was definitely hunting opportunity. There were, you know, things I wanted to do in my life. And I felt like getting out here was the only way to make it happen. And I just got lucky that my wife's down for pretty much any kind of adventure I can think of. So she was, uh, it was pretty easy to sell it on her. Took us a couple of years to kind of put it all together. Um, You know, I think we started planning like two years before we left. But yeah, it was a, as soon as I kind of asked her, I was like, Hey, do you want to quit our jobs, leave our house and leave our family all up here and just go explore and find a new place to live? She was totally down. Yeah. That's crazy. Did you guys have a certain timeline of we're going to be on the road for three months or six months or however long it takes? I mean, what, what was the kind of the, obviously you didn't have everything scripted or planned out, but you had to have like some level of concept of like, we want to check out these States or kind of work on this timeline. What, when you guys set off from the Northeast, what was the initial plan for the first, you know, month, two months, whatever, what did you have planned? Yeah. I mean, the only part of the plan was basically to explore until we ran out of money. That was kind of, that was kind of, the, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, we're going to see as much as we can with what we have. Right. We, we got married um, the summer before we left. We've been together for a really long time, but we wanted to actually get married while we were still around all of our family. And it was easy for them to all make it to the wedding and stuff. So um, after the wedding, we had a, a little bit of extra cash and stuff too, but we, yeah, we just kind of sold a bunch of our stuff and planned on traveling until we really couldn't anymore and needed to settle somewhere. But um, the first couple of days were the funniest. Cause we were no offense, Mark driving through the Midwest as fast as we could. We just knew we had, <laughs> 
there was nothing we wanted to see there. You know, we just blitzed through everything as fast as we could. till we hit the Dakotas. And I think the first like really cool, interesting place we hit were the Badlands. And it's like, we had been seeing cornfields for three days. And then all of a sudden, if you've never seen a picture of the Badlands, it looks like you're on Mars. Like the ground just drops away everywhere from you. It's crazy looking. So that was kind of like, to me, that was really the start of like, all right, this is something different. Um, but yeah, we just, we just had some places we wanted to check, check out. There were certain cities, um, you know, Bozeman was one that we were interested in. We wanted to look at some places in Washington. Uh, my wife's an ICU nurse, so we knew we needed to be somewhere near a relatively large hospital system for her to have the kind of job and the kind of work that she wants. So there were some limitations on where we could live. Honestly, I'd prefer to live like in a cabin a hundred miles from the nearest house, but I can't, can't really do that. So you guys ended up hitting all of those states then? Like you obviously, you, you hit Montana, you mentioned, obviously came through Idaho, went to Washington, and what else did you hit? We, we basically slowed down in the Dakotas. Um, I have some, my grandmother's actually from a tiny town, North Dakota called Hedinger, and we went and visited some extended family there that I'd never met. And uh, they were like the nicest people I, you could ever want to meet. They were unbelievably gracious, kind of like hosting us and showing, showing us around, showing us the land my grandmother was born on and stuff. It was pretty neat. That is neat. Uh, but we went through, the, went through the Dakotas, went down to Wyoming, um, went back up into Montana, kind of tooled around, met some more family that I'd never met before in eastern Montana, and then went to western Montana, back down to Wyoming. We really meandered around a lot. Um, but yeah, eventually went through Northern Idaho up through like the Lewiston area, kind of that, that Northern stretch over to Spokane, um, down into Oregon, back down into, I mean, we went through Bend, Oregon, went back down to Southern Idaho towards Boise. There were a couple places we wanted to hit and some things we wanted to do. We had originally planned, there were certain things we had planned out. Like we wanted to go to Mount Rainier and do some hiking and stuff up there. Uh, but my, I have two dogs and one of them blew out his ACL essentially on that trip. So he couldn't hike, which kind of put a damper on a lot of the, you know, the plans near the end of the trip that we wanted to, uh, we wanted to do, but never got to. What, so we kind of skipped over, you guys are on the road for weeks and months. What did that look like? You said you sold almost everything. Did, I'm, yeah. did you keep some stuff and like put it in storage? No. So we like, we, we looked around, it was funny because we, we weren't sure how we were going to do it at first whether we were going to buy an rv or get a travel trailer or we talked about converting like a bus at one point like we kind of just didn't know what we were going to do and at the end of the day we looked around and it's like i don't like most of the stuff that i have enough to drive it across the country so we got rid of all <laughs> of our furniture like we just there was nothing that we had that was so special we couldn't just rebuy it once we got wherever we were going so we got rid of pretty much everything, gave a lot of stuff away. Honestly, the hardest thing for me is like, you know, I love small game hunting, like duck hunting is one of my favorite things. And I had to like leave and give all my friends, all my decoys and stuff. It was like, I'd spent so long curating like a perfect setup of decoys. And then I just had to give it all away to my buddies. That was kind of hard, mm. but we, um, yeah, got rid of all of our furniture. We basically stuffed everything that mattered into a, a five by eight enclosed trailer and I uh, dragged it behind my Nissan Nextera and we slept in a rooftop tent for three and a half months. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. That's cool, man. So as you guys made the rounds and visit, like you said, extended family and just go check stuff out, was it an opportunity at EXO that 
want wanted to make you guys land in Boise or did you decide I think before then like no Idaho's it like let's go back here and kind of figure out how to settle some roots a little bit yeah uh I don't know maybe a year after I started here Steve asked me one day like when you left you know Connecticut did you ever think you'd end up living in Boise and working at EXO and I said if you'd asked me a year ago it's exactly what I told you what I would have told you I wanted to happen um, I had like a randomly hired the, the bar I was working at back in Connecticut. We had hired a, a bartender who's from Boise and he had been selling me on this city hard for like a year, knowing we wanted to move out here. And, uh, I kind of looked it up and one of the things that was really important to me, you asked about driving factors for moving out here at some point in my life, I want to hunt a sheep and a goat. And uh, looking at the way the draws worked everywhere, Idaho was my best bet over the next 30 years to be able to draw both those tags. Um, To say that that wasn't like a major driving factor would be like just straight line. Like I I really wanted to have an opportunity to draw a sheep tag and a goat tag at some point. And the way that a lot of the draw systems work in other states, even as a resident, you know, having to put in like in Montana for 20 years to hit max points. And then that max point pool just gets bigger every year. So the chance of drawing a bighorn tag is nearly nothing if you're starting right now. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I wanted to kind of end up where I could do the things that I was moving out here to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Boise seemed to offer a lot of what we were used to, you know, coming from New England, I'm used to being able to get Vietnamese food at one o'clock in the morning, right? Like there's, there's just like more there and a lot of western cities don't really have that right like a lot of stuff shuts down early or the cities are just a little bit too small and in that sense boise is like just big enough that it has a lot of the stuff we're used to but also in 15 minutes you can be in the mountains or the desert or on a river or there's just so much opportunity to do stuff outside here and boise sucks people please stop yeah nobody else should move here It used to be nice. It used to be nice. <laughs> now that people like now that people are like me are here, it's all yeah. it's all ruined. <laughs> oh, that's funny, man. So yeah, man, tell me tell me more about you get hired on a deck. So we talked a little bit how that happened and you're there for maybe a month, maybe two months. It was kind of undefined, but uh what was it like when Steve was like, Yeah, let's keep you around for a bit? Uh it was pretty awesome. Honestly, uh, he just kind of walked over one day and was like, uh, yeah, just, uh, when you're, when you have a minute, come talk to me. Like you, you probably don't want to just build backpacks for the rest of your life. And he just kind of like walked away. And I was like, was that a job offer? Like I was kind of asking the other people here, I'm like, does that mean he wants me to stay and do something else? And then I wasn't really sure if he meant like, come talk to me right now or in a couple of days or whatever. But yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, just kind of popped over and he's like, all right, we got to find something for you to do. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that look like today? Cause it's, I mean, it's, it's even obviously it's, uh, being in a small company, it's one of these things where we don't have these clearly defined, like, this is my job. This is my role. I do these two things. It's right. much more fluid than that. And it's changed, you know, over the past couple of years for you, but, uh, just to fill people in on a little bit, like, what do you do today at EXO? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We all wear a lot of hats. Like, you know, we were slammed after our Black Friday sale. And if someone had walked in the shop, I don't think they would have believed like Steve was grinding carbon stays and stuff. Like we all have to do whatever we have to do to get stuff out the door. And there's no, that's not my job here. Like that's just not something we can afford to have. Everybody has to be able to, you know, help each other and do just about anything. But now my job shifted into primarily operations and, um, 
production. So I deal with a lot of the raw materials and scheduling of when we order and get deliveries of raw materials, getting that stuff to our sew shops, um, kind of help trying to forecast and stay ahead of, I don't think a lot of people realize like what it's like to order the raw materials that go into our packs. Like the, some stuff shows up in two days, some stuff shows up in three months and like having to keep tabs on all that time, all the time, make sure we don't run out of anything. So if we don't have one component where production stops, right. So that's been kind of a, a pretty fun and interesting and at times terrifying kind of process to learn. Yeah, it's super, super important, man. It's super important to our business. I made yeah. sure very clear to Pat, like you can't F up, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you make one mistake on how many zipper sliders you order, production yeah. shut down for a month and yeah, it, or it more. just yeah, shoots us in the foot. So yeah, it's no so pressure. It's been, yeah. yeah, I know. No, but it's fun, man. I really like it. Like I've always been a fan of like puzzles and to me this is like one big constantly moving puzzle it's like trying to herd cats all the time it's great it's fun though i like it yeah that's a good way to put it man it's like a puzzle but the shape and even the picture on the puzzle is constantly changing and you're just trying to find pieces for it it's like trying to build a puzzle out of a rorschach painting or something i'm I'm guessing pat you didn't until you started doing the purchasing and and raw material side even being in the company you don't realize how complicated it is until you're actually doing it. Cause it's a, like you're coordinating with, you know, uh, a lot of vendors and different people and juggling this and that. And every, you know, some stuff we order X amount because of order minimums and the, and the next company you order this amount because of order minimums and, and then you're balancing lead times. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's very complicated. Yeah. For sure. And uh, yeah, I think when I finally kind of figured out what the job really was, I felt really bad for ever being frustrated that we were ever out of anything ever. Right. Right? (laughs) Anytime when I was building packs and I'm like, I don't get it. Why don't we have this? And it's like, now I'm like, oh, I know exactly why we don't have that. Because some of these people, it's funny, you do a lot of business and you can't even get them to call you back sometimes. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's always the... Not even about EXO. I just, I feel for most companies now, just even when you see stuff online, it's like, well, how come they just can't have stuff in stock, you know? And it's like, yeah. there's there's so many answers to that question of how come you guys can't have stuff in stock. And thankfully, you know, we've, we're getting better every day at like managing and forecasting and uh, thanks to you even like working with making sure that's going to be more um this can be smoother for us in the future, right? But even, yeah. like I said, even from other companies and other perspectives, it's like, oh, it's just one of those things. You look behind their curtain, there's so many different variables. I think it's even in our space, like in hunting, you know, backpacks or even just hunting gear in general, like stuff that's being made stateside, our lead times are unbelievable. Like it, compared to a lot of other companies in, in the hunting space, I think the fact that we're able to keep most stuff in stock most of the time and ship in two or three business days is pretty astounding. Yeah, and it hasn't always been that way, but hopefully that's the the way we can keep trending for sure. If I have anything to say about it, that's how it'll be. <laughs> <laughs> well, now people know where, who to contact if it's not. No. <laughs> yeah, you can you can reach me at Jake at Exo Mountain Gear. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, so one of the cool things, Pat, like you mentioned this even about moving to Idaho and uh, settling on Idaho was opportunity and hunting opportunity um, and being able to hunt like sheep and goats. And you have these dream species and you go, huh, like Idaho is a pretty solid system for that as a resident. Um, So tell us about that, man. And you 
you've been here a few years and you this yeah. past fall already got your goat hunt man i did yeah i got pretty pretty dang lucky with that i feel almost a little guilty about it but so yeah, that no. was your second year then applying as an actual resident uh yes that was the second time i had actually been able to apply as a resident so when we first moved here uh i had a like I said, we basically ran out of money moving here, but then I had to bite the bullet and come up with non-resident prices for, you know, all my tags, which was kind of rough. But my first season here was mostly me trying to feel like I wasn't going to die every night anyway. Like I've done a lot of backpacking, but it's just the, the terrain here is so different, right? Like it's so open and vast. It was to me really intimidating. And I always felt like I was going to get lost. And it was different from the hardwood forests and stuff back home where I, I know they're big and I was in lots of large tracts of land up in New Hampshire and Vermont and stuff, but because of the way the tree cover is, you can only see a hundred yards. So it feels pretty sheltered. Mm-hmm. I never felt like I was really in that big of an area. And then I got out here and man, especially at night, I was just like, I feel like I'm in the middle of the ocean. It's crazy. You can just see so far. Um, so yeah, my first season here was a, was kind of a wash, but the next year uh, I put in for goat and I didn't draw, but, somebody else and i'm sure you guys will talk to it when you do his uh his podcast but our buddy jake here drew a pretty awesome tag so i was really excited for him and then he called me this year and he's like hey did you draw and i was like what do you mean he's like well the trophy tags came up today and i was like oh, i'll call you right back he's like no you will not he's like you were going to stay on the phone with me while you check that tag. <laughs> I, was like, I was like okay so i check and i guess i must have gone quiet because he was just like hello hello and I said, you know, I drew an effing goat tag. I started freaking out. I was in my kitchen. It was unfortunately the beginning of this year. I was having to work from home. And I was just, I remember just pacing around my kitchen, staring at the screen over and over again, like in disbelief that it was green. Like I, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this has to be wrong. But I put in for like an unlimited like antelope tag or something. Like, I don't know what I just drew. And I, I couldn't believe it, man. It was, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. Oh man. Such a. It's a cool feeling. You know, like I looked back through last night, um, you know, my wife and I made an Instagram account with just a bunch of pictures and stuff from our trip that doesn't follow anything. So it was a way of us just kind of saving chronologically a oh, lot that's of the a places cool idea. we went. Yeah. So it doesn't, there's no other stuff on it. The feed is literally just our trip. So it's almost like a digital photograph book for us. But one of the things that we saw was we were going through Spearfish, South Dakota, and I saw my first mountain goat. I probably took 150 pictures of it and they're all just little white blobs, right? Like it was a nanny and a kid sitting up on a hill. And I remember my wife asking me to leave like five times. I just wouldn't leave. I thought it was the coolest thing. I'd always been fascinated with, uh, with mountain goats, even more so than sheep. Honestly, I just think they're the coolest animals and getting to see one for the first time. I was like, kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, this is actually going to happen. Like someday I'm going to actually get to chase one of these goats. I'll get to, climb up into that, you know, high country with them and hang out and it ended up happening two years into putting in for it. So I feel really, really lucky. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I think it's cool. You have like a, obviously you did this as a resident, but you're a new resident, right? So like going back to what you're saying before, like you're, you're just getting used to Idaho in general in the country and how different the terrain is and how different the mountains are. And so even though you drew the tag as a resident, in a lot of ways, like, it was all new to you. You know, you, you don't have like yeah. 20 years of history of buddies who've, you know, drawn mountain goat tags or uncles or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, I mean, you're like starting from scratch with it. Um, what was it like kind of like the initial 
even planning like did you even understand like how idaho and mountain goats like use the country in idaho and good areas and just all the kind of logistics man uh yeah i got super super lucky in that uh the tag that i had a good friend of mine and someone who ended up coming on the hunt with me justin carey had the same tag i did the year before um, so he had the ability to very quickly, like I showed him some of the areas I was interested in and he showed, he, he kind of was able to tell me, like, I looked there, it was just nannies and kids. There's lots of goats there, but I didn't find any billies. He kind of helped me eliminate a lot of areas early, mm-hmm. which saved me a lot of time in scouting. Um, and then having him as kind of a, a resource to, to bounce ideas off of. And then I had another friend, um, who has just been in that country a fair bit that gave me some pretty good advice in places that they've seen mountain goats. Um, they're not that hard to find, right? They're big white blobs. So especially when you're yep. looking in the dead of summer, when everything out here is for the most part brown, they're not all that hard to find once you kind of know like the elevations to look for them at and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think Justin was really like in, an invaluable resource and in helping me not waste a lot of time in scouting, which made it a lot easier for me to kind of be more targeted with where I was looking yeah yeah instead of going to boots on the ground scouting hoping to like find goats or figure out where they're at you're more you have some intel on where goats should be and it's more of like go and find some billies yeah you know and there were a lot of areas even some of the places that he said that he had you know found billies i went in this year you know things change year to year there were tons of nannies and kids there so in the summer at least what i found is if you're finding large groups of goats for the most part you're not going to find any older billies Uh, you're not going to find any decent sized billies for the most part it's going to be nannies and kids in those large groups if you're finding you know a group of two or three there's always a chance that it's you know a little bachelor group of, of billies or it's definitely a lone goat is usually a good indication as well um, so it was kind of, it was pretty cool. I did about 16 days of scouting in, in my unit and, uh, found a couple drainages that held big bodied billies. You know, I still never felt like I got really good at assessing like, you know, necessarily horn size. The hard part with goats is you're, you're talking about one inch, right? Like an eight inch goats, an average goat, a nine inch goat would be a good goat. A 10 inch goat would be huge. So you're talking about an inch or two at, you know, five, 600 yards, even through awesome optics can be kind of tough to tell. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. And I remember even chatting with you about that, Steve, when you got your mountain goat tag, it's like figuring out nannies and billies and judging size. Like there's a a lot of kind of like studying. And as you said, like it's very fine distinctions between a okay goat and a great goat sometimes, especially, you know, in, in real world conditions. Yeah. It was a fun, um, I, you know, I was similar to Pat in that, um, when I drew my goat tag in 2014, I knew I kn- it was number one on my list of the trophy species to hunt in Idaho, but I knew nothing about them. Um, I, I really didn't. I've never, never researched them. I didn't, when I drew the tag, like probably the, the first thing I Googled was how to t- tell the difference between a nanny and a billy. Um, and so that was a fun challenge. I spent, um, man, 17 or 18 days, I think, scouting that country prior to the opening day of season. And just, you know, I, I've, used a lot of resources, took a lot of photos, um, and, uh, you know, and I'd get back from the trip and run them by people that knew goats, you know, like, Hey, was this a Billy or was this a nanny? And then, um, what I enjoyed about glassing them is it's not, sometimes it's, um, after a while, I guess by the end of this, by the time I took my Billy that, you know, I could pretty quickly decipher Billy or nanny. And then, telling between a small Billy and a good Billy was, you know, I could also decipher that pretty quick, but then like Pat was saying, is it eight and a half or nine and a quarter? 
that's that's hard and that's putting looking at at body shape and uh, mass of the antlers and length of the antlers and you just got to kind of put a lot of parts it's not like just looking at a mule deer buck and going oh yeah that's a nice one you know Mm -hmm. Um, you really got to spend time watching them you can't just you're not just going to see a billy and go oh that's a shooter you know unless it's a massive really old billy but if it's anything that's kind of like right on that fence uh, you got to analyze it and it's it's just a cool it's so different than hunting elk or mule deer I spend a, a lot of time with, uh, there's a really good video from the Rocky mountain goat Alliance that talks about the differences between Billy's and nannies and how to tell the difference. And then their Instagram account does Billy or nanny quizzes all the time. So I spent a lot of time on their Instagram going through like months and months and months of those quizzes, trying to check myself and get better at kind of identifying different traits and from different angles and stuff. And like Steve was saying, I think by the end of my scouting season, I could pretty quickly tell you a a nanny from a Billy based on, you know, what goats they were with, whether they were alone, the way they were standing, the places that they tend to have stains on their, their hides, the horn shape, the horn bases versus length, stuff like that. But at the same time, trying to tell a half inch of black horn from a couple hundred yards is really hard. Well, on horn shape, uh, one's more like pronounced and curved than the other. Is that what you're referring to there? Um, uh, kind of yeah yeah steve go, why don't you talk about it <laughs> yeah no i mean uh yeah billy is basically going to sweep it's going to have a steady curve the second it leaves the skull uh and it um so it, it's just like a perfect kind of banana shape where uh, a nanny is typically going to go be more um almost like an antelope right it goes straight up and then the last two or three inches has a hook to it um that's the biggest thing and then so when you're seeing them um, what's tricky is if you see them from the side and their head is like up at an angle up or an angle down, it's really deceiving. And you just got to watch them for five minutes and, and watch them. Like they need to look at you. They need to look away. You need to see all these different angles before you can really say for sure what it is. Um, and then, yeah, so the, the and then the bill is just going to have a lot more mass. If you ever get that straight on shot, um mm-hmm. it's it's you know the the bases should almost appear to be touching if it's a if it's a good mature billy and then they kind of sweep out where the nannies are going to look like two pencils you know three inches apart that go just straight up mm-hmm. cool what were your uh takeaways from scouting season pat not in terms of just I mean, it could be about goats but i'm just thinking like you know being newer to idaho and then having this opportunity to spend many many weekends up in the mountains like anything that stands out in terms of lessons learned figured out gear you needed to change like all that from kind of the the months or sorry yeah i guess over the course of months the time you spent scouting yeah i think one of one of the things that i learned early on was to that i could be the most to try to be the most efficient as possible like i needed to cover a lot of ground so I went from in the beginning, I was hiking up onto the ridges that I thought I was going to find goats on. And, you know, typically goats are living really near the top of the elevation in that area. Right. So I think like the tallest peaks where I was are around 11,000 feet. And I was finding goats between 10 and 11,000 feet for the most part. Um, I was hiking all the way up there and hiking around the ridges. And the downside to doing that is you can really only see the opposite ridge once you're up there. So instead I started finding some lower spots that allowed me to see up into the drainages and I could see into multiple drainages at the same time. 
and then just using really good optics. You know, I'm lucky I get to steal whatever we have in the showroom here and borrow really, really nice spotting scopes all the time. Um, so I was pretty, again, pretty lucky in that sense where I could be, you know, 800, 1,000, 2,000 yards away and still be able to identify goats pretty easily. Um, so that was helpful. And then also, you know, I have this, I think I talked about it earlier, like the draw of the simplicity of backpack hunting. Once I'm out of my car, whether I'm scouting or hunting, I really don't like to get back in it, but I had to kind of like, like, I'd rather just hike around. Even if it's, if I'm walking past my truck, I'd rather walk past my truck and keep walking. I had to kind of just get over that and realize that I'd see a lot more country if I was willing to, you know, spend a day or two in a drainage, or if I wasn't finding what I wanted to go to my truck, move, get into a different drainage or even just save myself hiking two or three miles by doing that, I think made me a little bit more effective in scouting. Uh, I'm just very, very resistant to it. I don't know. I don't, I've never been the kind of guy that like, I don't like using dirt bikes and quads and stuff. I like just hiking. <laughs> you saying hiking made me think of this. We'll take a, a pause on your goat hunt and come back to that sure. goat hunt itself. But now I'm curious since you were talking about hiking, what was it like becoming an employee and then hearing about the first death hike and how was your first death <laughs> hike? <laughs> oh yeah, no, that was awesome. Uh, I started, like I said, in, in August. So I missed the first hundred miler by a couple, like by a month or so. Um, but hearing all about that was, was pretty cool. And, you know, I'd been a fan of the, the podcast and I'd actually been running an EXO since the skeleton frame. So I had a 2014 pack um, and then I sold it and bought a K2 pack in 2016. And I still had that bag when I moved out here, but I was using that primarily for all my backpack hunts for hauling tree stands and stuff back home. And I used to go up to New Hampshire and do some black bear hunting where my wife's from. Um, but when I got the opportunity to go on the, the death hike, it was the one that we did, um, up into the Frank church. And like, I know Steve sometimes talk about like the last Monday minute, you talked about how Dione was mentioning how like life-changing it's been coming out of that, like it truly felt like a crucible for me, like walking 25 miles into the Frank church wilderness and then walking out with 80 pounds of rocks on my back made me feel like I could do literally anything like whatever it was, it might suck, but I'm going to finish it. I'm going to get through it. I'm going to be fine. Like it just kind of showed me that I was capable of probably a lot more than I thought I was. And it, it's really made me a lot more relaxed and confident in the backcountry in general. I just feel like I can pretty much do whatever I have to. Good job on the uh, employee growth program there, Steve, of making people do death hikes. <laughs> Dude, yeah, I think I said this to you when we were at the trade shows last year, right? We got up like we're doing these trade shows. We work 20 days in a row. It's They're fun in some way, but they're 12, 14 hour days of having roughly the same conversation, right? Like it's cool to meet all of our customers and people that are running our packs. And I like meeting different people that are interested in it and hearing about what they're using them for. Um, but you know, on top of that, we wake up at like five 30 in the morning and go snowshoeing before the events. And, uh, I think we got back to the truck one day and I said, you know, I, I really want to say thank you guys for convincing me to do a lot of things. I don't think I want to do. Mm. <laughs> I do remember that. Now you say yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. I remember you saying and that. It just, it holds true, man. Like there's a lot of times where you guys put just the right amount of pressure where I feel like I kind of have to do something. And then I'm so happy I did it as soon as we're like out of the car and moving. <laughs> it's my like uh something that i've i fight you know too is or i just got to keep in the back of my mind of whenever i'm presented something whether it's uh just doing a, a workout at home when you're you know after i put the bed, kids to bed and it's nine o'clock at night or, or whatever it's like, the second you start moving you instantly are, are glad you've done it you know there's yeah. no there's never i have never ever in my life regretted 
going and doing like something active and physical workout hunt, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it, I always regret looking back and go, Oh man, I should have like, you know, Pat in your situation right now, um, you know, uh, no kids, like you right. will regret not hunting every single freaking day I know. Uh, that you possibly <laughs> <Yeah>. can. <laughs> like, trust me, it doesn't yeah. get easier. Um, I know. So don't, yeah, you'll never regret getting out and doing something fun on a weekend. That's for sure. Yeah. It's I've, nice I've to noticed, sit around and watch Netflix for a day, but you got plenty of time to do that later in life. I've yeah. noticed that even like in, in hunting, I've gotten to a point now where sometimes I'll be like hiking around and I'll be like, Oh, maybe there's something over that Ridge. I'm like, Oh, I'm probably not. And then I've kind of trained myself where the second I decide I'm not going to do something because I don't want to do it. Like now I have to do it. Even right. if I don't think it'll be productive. It's like, well, now, now I have to go see. So I have to get up and over it or whatever. I've started just pushing myself to stop being such a, a whining little baby all the time and, and just doing the things, you know, you should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, awesome. What's, uh, let's get back to the hunt, man. So you spend yeah. summer scouting, you got some options for sure. Um, I remember talking to you, you didn't want to go like super early into the season. I guess for listeners who are unaware, tell them about like the actual hunting season itself. Like when's your first opportunity, yep. um, when the season opens for goats and then kind of what was your strategy leading into the hunt itself? Yeah, it's a, it's a really long season, right? So goat tags are extremely limited. Um, the unit I was in, I think, I think there's two tags. Um, so it's, it's pretty, it's pretty limited. They kind of expect and want everyone that gets a tag to get a goat. So they give you a long time to do it. It's an any weapon hunt. Um, you know, you can take either species, but, um, that RMGA video I was talking about was, um, kind of explains like when you take a nanny, how it really affects like the population down line. So you really want to be sure you're taking a, a billy. Um, but I, I wanted to wait till they're coated up, right? We were talking about horns, it's not like a deer or an elk where you're going to have a huge set of horns. Like a really big mountain goat is, has two inch long or two inch longer horns than an average size one. So to me, like what was impressive about them is where they live, the country they live in, how sparse they're, you know, able to territory they're able to survive in, but, but also like their monster body size. Um, so I wanted to get that coat as long and shaggy as I could really wait for the weather to cool down and have them be coated up. Cause they're pretty patchy, almost like a, like a spring bear can be kind of rubbed out. Um, if you go super early, like in August, um, uh, they kind of look like a tennis ball, right? Like they just have like fuzz on them. Um, if you wait and I think Steve, when you did your hunt, you waited till October too. Is that your deadline? Yeah. Yeah. Mine, mine was, um, yeah, same exact thing. I didn't, didn't want to start hunting until October. And I remember, specifically being at a um you know i didn't understand makes sense in hindsight but that that how their coat fluctuates in length and stuff for summer to winter and i remember being at uh just it was just the idaho sportsman show and there was this mountain goat uh, mounted and it it was exactly like you just said it looked like a fuzzy tennis ball and i asked the taxidermist I'm like why does that look so terrible what, ha- <laughs> what happened what, to what that happened thing? to this goat like yeah the guy shot at opening day august 30th and i was like oh okay uh i check that box don't want to shoot one august 30th so yep yeah so i just i tried to force myself to wait till october 1st um, that was kind of the date that I gave myself, like, I'll go out in October by then one elk season's over. So I, you know, like I, I say, I elk hunted this year. I walked around the elk woods in the same unit. My goat tag was in staring up at, at the mountain. I was barely, <laughs> I was barely elk hunting. I was just looking for goats all the time. Um, so it's kind of tough, but yeah, I wanted to wait till October and, uh, in talking to, like I said, my friend, Justin, he shot his goat a little bit later. And he said that the goats pretty much hung up where they were, like where they were in the summer is where they were right up until the first good snow. 
Uh, once it snowed, he had trouble relocating some of the goats that he had targeted. So I was trying to ride that perfect line of just chasing, you know, high pressure systems and getting good weather where I'd be able to see really far, really far and um, getting the goats coated up, but trying to get in there before the first big snow where they're likely to kind of move around a little more and make it harder for me to find them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So October rolls around, man. It's time to start hunting. What was, uh, what was the strategy and the excitement going into that? Yeah, I was uh, stoked. The best part of, well, one of the best parts about working for a hunting company is when you have a tag like that, like I never had to explain to Steve why I needed a bunch of time off. I was kind of just like, I'm going to be gone for the beginning of October until there's a dead goat in my car. Right. Yeah. And he was kind of, he was kind of just like, okay, yeah, just let me know if it's going to be longer than, you know, the first trip you planned. And, um, I went in with Justin, he came and hunted with me. And then our other buddy, Will Meyer, uh, came with me too, to take some pictures and film and stuff. I'd kind of asked him if he'd be willing to just lug a camera around. And that dude's like a mountain goat all on his own. So he's not, a, he's never a bad guy to have around. He can carry virtually anything. He's the kind of guy who like runs up to the ridge to tell you what's over it while I'm struggling to get to the top <laughs> and he'll jog back down and tell me what's over there. So, uh, yeah, it was the three of us set off and, uh, set up in the bottom of the basin with stuff to car camp, stuff to backpack camp. Uh, I had about eight days worth of food and stuff with me. I just wasn't sure what it was going to look like. Um, so 16 days of scouting turned into about 16 hours of hunting and we ended up having a, a go down on that first day. Man, how did, the, how did it go sweet. down, man? Yeah, no, I want to get into that, like kind of the bittersweet aspect to it, but, uh, yeah, don't, don't go through it that fast, man. What was it like, you know, making an approach shot, all that stuff. Actually, before we do that, let me, let me ask you this too, cause I thought this was very cool. Tell me about the rifle that you use for this hunt. Oh Yeah. Uh, so you asked about the death hike before when we went into the death hike, there were some challenges and one of them was a shooting challenge. It was technically, we, we had bear tags. So I had a rifle with me and, uh, I, you know, where I'm from rifle hunting is not really a thing. We mostly archery hunt. There's just not a lot of, you know, federal land, state land where you can use uh, a rifle. So I have a single rifle. It's, a, a Winchester model 70 and 270 win that was built in new Haven the same year I was born in new Haven. Um, I found it at Cabela's like all beat up and I took it out. I put it in a new stock, got a nice scope for it and got it all set up. And actually the, the three of us who three of the guys that work in the, the warehouse here went to on the death hike, ended up winning the shooting competition, shooting my like $600 rifle uh, compared to a bunch of like Steve's, you know, snowy mountain rifles. And there were guys shooting like, you know, high dollar custom rifles. And we ended up actually winning the shooting challenge, which was kind of cool. So I have a lot of faith in that gun. As far as I'm concerned, I, I don't see a reason for myself to get another rifle. I'm probably just going to keep carrying that one. Yeah. I love it, man. It's so cool. Like just not only the fact that it's old, but like you said, that connection of it's from the same year you were born from the same place. And now like, as so you stack I up, it. yeah, that's neat. But you know, that even becomes better. Like now that you've yeah. killed your goat with it, right? Like you only stack yeah. up memories with that rifle and it's just, it becomes, oh, sure. you know, more of its own little legend, if you will. Yeah. Like I, I spent most of my time growing up, like learning how to hunt and stuff. I was mostly small game hunting. Like we have a lot of white tail where I'm from, but sitting in a tree stand has just never been for me. I like moving around and I love dogs. So I have a couple of bird dogs and I do a lot of upland hunting. So I have some really nice shotguns, but my favorite shotguns, uh, you know, an Ithaca model 37 that my great uncle gave me that he's been killing woodcock and grouse with since the sixties. Um, like there's just no gun that I like better. And I also shoot it better than anything else I own. Like I have some really nice shotguns, but that's what I carry almost all the time when I'm out in the upland woods. I just like old guns. That's cool. 
Yeah. So getting back into the hunt, goat spotted, were you were you sure like this was the one? Like as you're spotting this goat, you're looking like, all right, we got this Billy, he looks approachable. Like just thinking through the logistics of it's opening day, like the decision to pursue him. Yeah. So we, we in the morning, uh, you know, Will and Justin and I just popped up onto a ridge that gave us a really good vantage point into like three or four kind of like finger, not finger ridges, but like kind of valleys. And uh, it gave us an opportunity to kind of look into the areas where I had seen the biggest goats while I was scouting that they seemed to be two or three goats that were all pretty good size. One of them had a broken off horn. So I knew I didn't want to find that one or I didn't want to chase that one, but um, we got up to the ridge in like 10 minutes after sitting down, uh, Will got distracted cause he found a really big elk coming down the, the ridge we were sitting on. So he was staring at that, trying to film it. But I, I ended up spotting three goats in like the first 15 minutes. Uh, and this one w- was clearly just bigger bodied than all of the other ones. He was the furthest away and still looked the biggest. And, um, while we were watching him, he dug out a bed up against some rocks underneath this little, like six foot tall tree. And the, he dug a really deep bed and gave a pretty good impression that he wasn't planning on going anywhere. Um, so he was, I don't know, maybe two, two and a, maybe about two miles from where we were. Um, but we were able to dump off the ridge and get back in the car and drive down Valley a whole bunch to make the approach shorter. Um, and to give us kind of a better direction to come in from. So, you know, I kind of confirmed with them once I'd seen it, you know, they were taking a look at it and they're like, yeah, that thing's bodies. It's huge. Right. So it's bases looked really, really big too, as much as you can tell from that distance, like the bases were way bigger than his eye. Um, he looked like a really solid goat, definitely something that was worth looking at. Plus, like I said, I knew there were two other billies in that area. So I figured even if we get up in there, if he's not what we're looking for, chances are we'll be able to get eyes on one of those other billies too. Um, so we dropped down, get in the truck, drive down Valley, and then hike up a different ridge to get in position. Um, we found a grove of trees that looked to be between two and 300 yards away from him. And it, we should have had a pretty good angle for a shot from there. Uh, so we kind of really slowly made our way up there, obviously went up the ridge as fast as we could, but then slowed down. So we got close and, uh, it was one of those weird situations where like Justin was on my left and Will was on my right. And they're both asking me, like, do you see him? Do you see him? And I kept saying, no, I don't see the goat. And they're like, he's right there. And I'm like, I don't see the goat. There just happened to be like a tree directly between me and the goat. And I couldn't see him. So I finally like swapped places with Justin, just in time to see his butt kind of, he just stood up and knew something was up and just slowly meandered up and over the ridge he was sitting on and kind of disappeared. So I just saw him from the back, um, but never actually had a shot opportunity. We were like, man, I can't believe he, we weren't moving around a lot or anything. I can't believe he, you know, he noticed us or I don't know what happened. The wind was good. Um, later we went over to where he was and we looked back and we thought we were in great cover. We were just like wide open, like totally wide open. There were trees around us, but uh, you could see right into it from where he was. So he definitely must've spotted us kind of moving around. Um, and then we spent, I don't know, maybe an hour trying to just figure out where he went from there, you know, being careful and looking around, figuring he's a goat. He probably went higher. We were looking up above us. Then we hiked to the highest point we could get to and still couldn't find him. all the way to the, that like desperate move where Will and I started rolling rocks off the ridge that we, he was on to see if maybe he went below us and we could get him to like blow out. He'd still be in the same Valley. We could try to follow him and then relocate him, and nothing like he seemed to have just kind of vanished. Uh, so kind of disappointed, but you know, figured 
we still had some daylight. This is probably around like two o'clock by that point, by the time we'd actually gotten there and, you know, had that first stalk fall apart. Um, we kind of went up the rest of that Ridge to the backside where we could drop down into the bottom and come up the other side. And the idea was to look back towards where we were just standing and see if maybe we could get eyes on him or another goat. Um, you know, I struggled back and forth a little bit trying to decide whether I wanted to bring my rifle or my bow. Um, but like you said, this is, I don't have a lot of experience in Idaho and I just had the, this constant, I didn't also didn't shoot my bow all that well this year. Like we do a little friendly competition at Tamarack every year. Um, you know, Steve started as run, shoot, puke. And it's basically like you're running the pure elevation course from target to target. Well, this year, the person who did the worst had to jump into a river and I didn't even wait for everybody to come down and tell us what their scores were. I knew I shot so bad. I just got in the <laughs> river. Like I had, I was just having a really rough year with my bow. So the, the compilation of that, and then having to, to think of the, the idea of like a big Billy walking by me at 90 or a hundred yards and just being out of reach was crushing. I just wanted a goat so bad for so long. Uh, I figured, you know, to be honest, it didn't mean that much more to me to take one with my bow versus my rifle. So I brought the rifle and ended up getting a shot well within bow range. Yeah. There's all these, uh, like listeners are probably picking up on whether it's about working at XO or just doing anything with Steve, there's always like punishment or hazing involved. <laughs> no, we, it's, it's, we an will, it's an opportunity to punish yourself. We so will never have a human resources department. I can pretty much count on that. <laughs> there, no, there are JP, opportunities. JP self-appointed himself as the human resources department. He's <laughs> HR. <laughs> there are opportunities for growth, Mark. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. The funny part about that was I got out of the river and there was like, I'm soaking wet. And I'm like, it was a, more like a Creek than a river. And I felt so weird. So I'm walking up out of it and there's like this nice family. It was like a husband and wife and two little kids walking up the trail. And here I am like coming out of the river with no shirt on, like soaking wet in the morning. And they must've been really confused. Yeah. <laughs> so post shot, you anchor the goat. Like how did that actually go down? Uh, he rolled off this little ledge that he was sitting on like you you know he went stiff i knew he was dead really like right from the moment i saw the impact he just he did that thing where he went totally stiff and just rolled off the hill um i it was kind of neat too like i said i dumped my spotter and i was borrowing uh, a koa 88 from here in the shop which is a phenomenal spotting scope but i left it with justin who stayed down bottom to keep eyes on the goat and uh, i think he has a, a vortex razor spotter normally and he just randomly tried to put his digiscoping adapter onto the Koa and they happened to be the exact same size. So I had Will filming from over my shoulder when I was shooting. And I also got a second angle of the shot from Justin filming through that 88. So I had this really cool, unique kind of situation where I have two, two angles of the same moment of my hunt. I can kind of see it from an outsider's perspective and then also see myself from over my shoulder, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, in retrospect, being able to look back on that. Um, but yeah, so I just turn around and I start swearing a whole bunch and yelling and, and with Will <laughs> and just being excited and he's freaking out for me. And then all of a sudden it hits and I was just like, I need to see this thing. So we, we start trying to get down to him. Uh, we had actually dropped our shoes. So we had to go grab our boots and pack and stuff and uh, find a way to get down to where he was, which turned out to be probably the sketchiest part of the whole thing. Like when that, thinking back to it, if it wasn't a dead goat right there, I definitely would have gone back the way we came and came up from the bottom. But instead we tried to like 
you know, I took Will, I took a bunch of Will's stuff and he climbed down with all four hands. Then I was like handing him down a bunch of stuff so I could use all my hands and feet to climb down. And we hit this weird little shoot where we were basically both just trying not to fall riding like a little mini avalanche of rocks and dirt and stuff, probably 50 or 60 yards down like a shoot. It was a little sketchy. Um, but we get down to the, almost to the bottom where we're just trying to get over the last little ridge and Justin got there first. And he's like, Oh man, he's like, get down here. And I'm like, don't wait for me. Tell me, does he have a set of nuts or not? Like I wanted to make sure it was a Billy. Like <laughs> there's always that question. You know, I, I was almost positive. Like you're never totally positive until you actually walk up to it. Right. I was like, just get up there. Don't wait for me. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, wait any longer than I have to. And um, yeah, so we get down there and he was dead right where we left him. Uh, it was like, we had just enough time to get him into a good position. And Will took some pretty epic photos, um, getting some cool pictures of like the, the scenery and stuff, like things that'll kind of remind me of not just the animal, but of the hunt itself and stuff. And we were all pretty dehydrated at that point. It was like six o'clock. It was getting dark, but, uh, I, I absolutely, as much as I love hunting also love whiskey. So obviously I had whiskey with me. And with all of us dehydrated, like one shot each, and we were all getting like, feeling like legitimately a little tipsy, which made hiking out kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but it's like pitch black. We're side hilling through blowdown and stuff. And uh, at some point we saw, I don't know if it was a bear or a mountain lion, but we just saw those like flat forward facing like predator eyes staring at us. So Will's like, there was down below us. And we were trying to decide whether we went down and look for a trail or up. We saw that Will's like, well, we're going up. So we just turned and kind of went up until we hit like a, a more passable area. It was the blowdown got really bad, which when you're tired and, you know, they, I was lucky I had them, the both of them with me. We took the whole goat out in, in one trip, but you know, I don't know if you noticed this too, Steve, but they're, they're mostly like hair and guts. Like there's not a ton yeah. of meat on a goat. Yeah. Their rib cage is massive, like absolutely huge, but there's just not a ton of meat on them. So packs weren't that heavy, but it was still kind of awkward getting through all that blowdown and getting out to the truck. Yeah. Say so not much meat, but uh I've heard excellent meat. What's your opinion been of eating the goat? Other than Steve made us uh some backstrap right before Christmas from that spike that he shot this year. Oh, that other cute than, little guy. <laughs> <laughs> other other than that elk meat, it's the best game meat I've ever had. It's fantastic. It's so mild. Like I don't like lamb and I was worried it was gonna be kind of like have that like lamby flavor. It's more like bison. It's super lean, um, you know, deep red meat. That's it's delicious. I've eaten it in roasts. I've eaten it as steaks. I've had it as ground meat and stuff. Uh, it's been really, really good. Yeah, it's. I I made the mistake of um, on my goat. You know, I think everyone I talked to is like, oh, it's going to be tough and blah blah blah. And so I just kept the back straps and then took the rest of the meat to the butcher and said, just hey, make this all into hamburger. Um, and it's tough to say it. Literally it's hamburger but it was the best hamburger i've ever had that, that stuff was absolutely amazing the flavor is awesome yeah and i love i love cooking so like i like to cut up my own animals i like to keep like the cuts that i like to cook and stuff and um that that goat's been good every way we made it yeah pat pat's our designated every friday we kind of have a company lunch and pat's uh our designated guy that provides that for everybody it's pretty nice yeah i don't, I don't know though steve you made those ribs those were like some of the best ribs i've ever had <laughs> you do you make that good backstrap. Ribs, it was awesome like yeah. i might have to do it every friday but whenever you get the inkling man just hop in there because that food's <laughs> really good yeah yeah we didn't you didn't cover that another perfect example pat of your roles and responsibilities at exo they just never well, we, you we, know, like i said we evolving. all wear a lot of hats here yeah it's yeah. true <laughs> i'm pit boss yeah yeah Pro production operation jakey's babysitter 
cook. <laughs> whiskey <laughs> provider. Yeah, wh- yeah, whiskey, whatever you whiskey sommelier. Yeah. Yeah. Have you tried any of those whiskeys yet that I sent you? I have not, man. I got I'm no. slacking. Got to crack into it, man. That's going to be fun. I can't wait to see what you think. Yeah, I got to get on it. Um, we talked earlier about it being bittersweet. Just kind of mentioned that in passing. And obviously, yeah. you know, it's a it's trophy hunt, trophy species, something you've wanted to do and like had dreams of and uh you know, got to spend a lot of time in the country scouting, but then on the same hand for the hunt itself to go quick and opening day and it's done. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, just talk about that. It was funny because it was almost, almost simultaneously. Like when I shot the goat, I was so excited, so happy. I felt, you know, like a, a sense of accomplishment. And at the same time, like almost immediately a sense of sadness that it was over. Right. Like I'd been looking forward to it and thinking about it for so long and then drawing the tag and then scouting and finding the goats. And like, I had played it out so many times in my head. And, you know, you talk about opportunities for growth, Steve, I had all these like sick fantasies of having to like borrow a snowmobile and having it get to November. And it's like the last week and I still haven't killed a goat and I, they close the roads and I have to snowmobile in. And I was looking at crampons in case I had to like hike up the edge <laughs> of an ice mountain. You don't need, like I had these ideas of it being horrible and I shot them the first weekend in October with like 60 degree sunny weather. So it was just like a little bit, I didn't feel like, uh, I don't feel robbed at all, obviously, but uh, at the same time, it was just so sad that it was over. And I think my biggest mistake might've been, I had taken off, you know, that was on like a Saturday. I had taken off that whole following week. So I'd have like nine days in a row, but I couldn't help it. I sent everybody pictures and I don't know if it was rob or if it was jake somebody was like cool see you monday and i was like oh man i should have stayed and gone fishing or something (laughs) i should have not said anything and just stayed up here and kept hanging out for a week but yeah no i don't it was it was definitely bittersweet and you know now that it's over i I love talking about it i'm just like now i'm trying to get all my friends to put in for goat hunts so i get to go on another one right like it was really really cool um something I would love to do again to a point where I've actually started like looking at trying to go to Alaska. Um, it's one of the only places that you can actually, well, Alaska and Canada where you can kind of buy a tag, right? Yeah. Like you can, you can actually go hunt them without having to draw in some places. And, uh, that's something I'm definitely interested in doing again at some point, but I guess I got to turn my eyes and my luck on, on either Bighorns or California's in Idaho now. What a problem to have. I know. <laughs> That's awesome, Pat. Well, uh, man, thanks for sharing the story. And uh, it's cool, man. It's been awesome to have you a part of the team here for the last few years. And yeah, excited to get this one out there. So thanks for taking the time, man. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks a lot. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Patrick and a little bit more about the behind the scenes here at Exo Mountain Gear. Tune in tomorrow to hear from Jake Kavlicek. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button so that you do receive future episodes automatically. Once again, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Talk to you soon.